0: Well, welcome to church, welcome to the new, the new way of church, at least for a while. I uh, hope you're doing well out there. Uh, we do find ourselves in unprecedented times, I think that goes without saying. Uh, none of us have ever experienced anything like this before. And look, it's, it's a challenge. Um, we are in a crisis, this is a challenge. And you know, when I think about it, I, I think as Christians, it really does give us an opportunity it presents for us a challenge but it also it gives us an opportunity in the way that we we do Christ through the midst of this in the way that we carry ourselves as a church through the midst of this and the reality of it is is that when everything is so uncertain it's very easy for for for, to, to have fear to have anxiety to have doubts to to have the uncertainty that we're going to have about the future and and I think that's just a, that's a natural response, and we, we, we see that all around us, and the people we talk to, and uh, we, this, this is just a common feeling amongst all of us who are going through this. And so I guess even as Christians, it, it, it would be very easy for us to feel that, and, and maybe justifiably so. But I, I wonder if in a moment like this, it also helps to reveal to us what's really in us. You might have seen the analogy before, heard the analogy before, where, you know, when you squeeze a toothpaste tube, uh, you know, whatever is inside that tube is is what's going to come out. You know, when you put under pressure, what is it? Whatever is in you is going to come out very naturally, and you really can't hide that. It's it's a natural response. It's a visceral response to whatever the situation is, to whatever the crisis is. And so whatever is going on in us is going to start to be revealed through this, good or bad, whatever that might be. It's certainly not here to, to cast any judgment. But I wonder if in that moment, in this experience that we're having, if we just take a stop for a minute to ask, well, what is it that's coming out? And what is it that we can bring out of ourselves into this particular situation? And so I guess my message this morning, it's fairly simple, it's just a challenge. You know, what is it that we are going to bring out of ourselves through this? What are we going to bring for our own situations and then maybe even for the situations of those around us? So I want to, I want to look at a passage in Philippians. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to pick it up from verse 12. And before we get into the verse, I want to just sort of set a bit of a context for you as to uh, where this particular passage came from, where Paul was when he was when he was writing this, because I think we can probably resonate a little bit more with Paul's situation at the time. So most of you would know that Philippians, Paul wrote from prison. It was, a, it was what we call one of the prison epistles. And the situation that Paul is in, the prison situation that he finds himself in, is actually house arrest. And so he's in house arrest, he's in Rome. And the reason why he's there, there's a, the, the reason why he's actually under house arrest is that he's awaiting trial before Nero? Now, what had actually brought him to this situation? This was actually Paul's choice to go into this situation. Uh, Some time before this, he'd been in Caesarea. He'd been on trial there, and the Jews that were trying to uh, to um, to prosecute him, what they really wanted was. F- to kill Paul, they, they really they, they weren't necessarily concerned about Paul, you know, spending time in prison. They wanted to see him dead. And so, as a part of this trial in Caesarea, they they made a proposal to the governor and they said, "Look, can you bring Paul back to Jerusalem, and we'll try him there. We'll try him in Jerusalem with our own people." Now, Paul knew what was going on. Paul knew what that meant. They he knew that they had a plan. They were plotting to to end his life on the way there because they'd done that before. They, so he knew. He knew what was at stake if he, if he went down there. So Paul had an ace up his sleeve. The fact that he was a Roman citizen, it meant that he was able to make an appeal to Caesar. Now, that was a special privilege you had as a Roman citizen. If you found yourself in a situation, if you found yourself in a trial or in a difficult uh, spot where you know, it, was going to, it was looking very bad, where things were going south, you had this ace up your sleeve, this literal get-out-of-jail-free card, where you could say, I appeal to Caesar. And what that would do is almost like it would just freeze time. Whatever was proceeding at that point had to stop. You had made that appeal. That was your right as a a citizen. And the only thing that people could do at that point was to allow you to go and make your appeals to Caesar. Now there was a catch to it. And the catch was this. For you to get to Rome to make your appeal, you had to pay your own way to get there. So this is going to be very difficult when you're, this is a big empire that, of this Roman Empire, so just to even get to Rome is going to be quite an expense. But once you get to Rome, there's no, there's no way the emperor was going to see you the day you arrive. You wait until you get a chance on his time. So he's a busy man. He, he may not see you for a very long time. So for you to have that opportunity to speak before him, uh, you had to wait your turn to, to, have your, to make your appeal. In order to do that, you had to look after yourself. And if you wanted to bring any witnesses to Rome who who would stand on trial with you, you had to pay for them as well. And so for Paul, just to get to Rome and then to be in Rome, all of that was an expense. For him to stay in Rome for however long that time was gonna take, he had to pay for that himself. So when he got to Rome, he was considered to be a very low-risk criminal. In fact, what they had realized is that there was no charges against him. He was actually innocent. But it's the the fact that he had to make he'd made that appeal they had to go forward and, and carry it through they actually had to uh, to do what he had requested as a citizen, and so he gets to Rome and he finds himself in house arrest. What that means is that he had to pay for his own house, and whilst he was waiting for trial, he would have Roman guards guarding him the whole time, obviously to make sure that he doesn't escape. Somebody had to pay for that accommodation, and that of course was going to be Paul. Now. The thing about being in prison, I've never been in prison, but I'm pretty sure that when you're in prison, you can't work at the same time. So you can't actually be making money at the same time. So whatever resources Paul had are theoretically all that he was going to have for the entire time that he was there. So in order to stay as long as he was maybe going to need to stay, he would have had to have found the cheapest possible house that he could find. Paul wasn't living in some villa, some mansion in in the middle of Rome. He was living in the cheapest possible accommodation that he could find, just to have a roof over his head, just to have a place to, to stay until whatever time Nero decided that he was going to hear Paul's case. Now, the thing about Rome, Rome was the largest city of the ancient world. The city of Rome had a population of about a million people. And we go, that doesn't sound that big. I mean, we've got cities all over the world that are much, much bigger than that. But you go back 2000 years ago, you back to the first century, a city of a million people is absolutely unprecedented. It was the largest city that the world had ever seen to that point. And to put it into, into perspective, the next time in human history that there was a city of a million people was in London in the 19th century. So a million people in this tiny little space of Rome One was just remarkable. The world had never seen anything like that before. But what it presents is the problem of where does everybody live? Where do they stay? How do you fit a million people into that tiny little space of ancient Rome? Well, the only way around that uh, is to build apartment blocks. And so what Rome was full of was six and seven-story high apartment blocks. And this was big business if you had the money in Rome to build these things. Because what it meant was that you've got all of these citizens that are looking for a place to stay and of course they're going to come and stay in your, in your particular apartment. Now, landlords back then and, and, and builders back then, they were pretty dodgy. I mean, things have changed a lot in today's world. But back then, they were very, very dodgy. And so when we picture these apartment blocks, don't picture some you know, beautiful brick structure that um, you know were very expensive and very high quality. No, it, these things were built to be cheap. These things were built to make money. So the first thing you do is you build them very, very cheaply. You build them out of the cheapest material you can find. You build them quickly. You build them as high as you can before they collapse. And you make the smallest possible spaces that you can find in order to fit everybody in so again don't think of a bigger partner space think about something the size of your lounge room this is what we're dealing with here we're dealing with tiny little spaces of very very small something like a small shoe box that not just one or two people are staying in but an entire family would be staying in a husband a wife several kids and probably even an extended family probably even some grandparents, maybe some aunts and uncles, as many as could fit into that tiny little space. And in that space, you're going to be doing your cooking and all your cleaning and everything else that's going on is all done in that tiny little shoebox of the space. So Paul would have had something like that. But where he would have been probably would have been in a top floor space, in a a top floor apartment. Now, you've got to think, Everything was backwards then to what it is now. We think today, top floor, penthouse. Now, the penthouse in the ancient world was the bottom. Because if you're in a building that's built very shabbily, that's built entirely of timber, and in a world before electric ovens, where all cooking and all heating came from an open fire, you've got a wooden building that has constant open fires in every room. Not only that, if you're on the top floor, you've got to go down to the street, down to the aqueduct to get your water. And you've also got to go down there to empty the bucket that you've been using as a toilet for the last 24 hours if you have the courtesy to go downstairs and throw it in the street, otherwise, you might just throw it out the window. But more importantly, if there's a fire, which inevitably happens in these structures, you're in the top floor, you're as good as dead. That's it, that's your life over at that moment. So to get the top floor is going to be to get the cheapest room, because nobody wants to be in the top floor except for the people that have got absolutely no resources whatsoever. So that's what we have to imagine Paul. Paul finds himself in this top story of one of these tiny little apartments, the cheapest he can probably find, and the whole time he's there, he's attached to a soldier. He's attached to a Roman guard. Now, the Roman guard that he was attached to were the personal bodyguard of the emperor. And so he, he's always got with him one of, these, one of these guards that's attached. Now he does have the freedom to have people come and go, which is a small bonus, but the difficulty for Paul is that he doesn't know when his trial is gonna come. He doesn't know if he's gonna even have enough money to last. Fortunately, the Philippians had sent him some support in order to keep him going, but his whole life is a life of uncertainty. He can't leave the building. He can't go anywhere. Um, And the whole time he is literally locked away and he's he's completely isolated. So the Philippians, they write to him and they say, well, how are you going, Paul? Like primarily, are you doing okay? You know, you're in prison. And the reality for Paul is that he could go on trial tomorrow. And if Nero's having a bad day, that could be the end of his life. He doesn't even know if today when he wakes up, if he's going to see to the end of the day because Nero could just call him up and, and that would be his moment. So there's total uncertainty about his future. He's got no idea what's going on. And so the Philippians naturally, out of their concern and love for him, they write to him and they say, Paul, are you okay? How are you doing? And so Paul's response is what we find in Philippians. Philippians is what we call a letter, a letter of friendship. It's a letter between close friends. And the function of this letter is just to maintain the friendship. There's no specific instruction in it. There's no rebuke in it. There's no, uh, you know, new teaching that Paul wants to bring to them. It's just keeping up the friendship. And so the language in, in it is, is profound. You know, the joy and the, uh, the just the, the glory in God that Paul finds even through this difficult time. But specifically, he needs to answer this question. He answers the question to them of, of how is he actually doing? And what I love about his answer, I'm gonna look at a couple of verses here starting in verse 12 about how Paul sees this situation, how Paul responds in this particular situation that he finds himself. And I think it has got a lot to speak to us. I think at any time, certainly in any time of our life, but maybe even more so now in the situation we find ourselves. So he says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Here's a question, do you look for God's hand in a difficult situation? Because difficult situations happen, crises happen. They do, that's just part of life. The question's not, can we avoid them, or you know, what do we do to mitigate these? The question should be really, do we see God in the midst of this situation? So we find this great story in Genesis 45, and it's a story you'd be familiar with, it's the story of Joseph being sold into slavery. And you know we know the story. His brothers were jealous of him. They sell him into slavery, very unjustly, of course. I mean, he's completely innocent. Um, and even when he gets to Egypt, he finds that the suffering doesn't end, the persecution doesn't end. Um, he's in prison. He's going through all sorts of difficult times there. But as the time rolls on, he begins to realise that actually there's a greater purpose to the situation that he that he's in. And in fact, it's revealed later on when his brothers eventually do get to uh, get to Egypt and he confronts them, he, he reveals to them that I'm your brother, I'm the one that, sold you, that you sold into slavery. And of course, they freak out. They, he's going to kill us. This is the second most important person in the world. Uh, he's going to kill us for what we did. But of course, by that point, Joseph had realized that the reason he was there is that God had actually sent him there in order to... Uh, to deal with this, this famine that has that that swept across the land. And his response is so amazing. He says to, the, to his brothers, guys, I know you intended harm, and you did sell me into slavery, but what I've realized is that it was God who's actually sent me ahead of you. It was God that actually sent me down here in order to be the savior of the world. And so it's just this really profound insight that he had into the situation, this bigger picture of what was going on. Now, of course, I'm not going to, of course, I'm not implying that this is something God has done. This is not, I mean, and please, if there's anyone who's suggesting that, please don't don't say that. It's just, it's simply not the case. But we know that God can work in the midst of difficult situations. And so, I guess my first challenge would be, can we see God in this? Can we see God's hand at work, even in the midst of this most difficult situation? We've got this great, incredible thing that's just happened to us at our college. I, I lecture at Alpha Cruces College, and... Just in the last week, we've had so many people who are, you know, finding themselves with more time on their hands and saying, "Well, I may as well do some study." In fact, we've had a few pastors that have said, "Look, we've, we don't have." I've always been wanting to do study, and now we find this situation where I've got no excuse anymore, and so they're wanting to start their studies. And so, even as a college, we're finding people just wanting to take advantage of the time in which they find themselves. So, do we see God through this? I guess that's the simple. The simple question, the simple challenge that we that we might ask ourselves. Paul goes on and he says, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Again, another thought, I guess another challenge, is that our response in this situation becomes our testimony. Now, of course, it's difficult for us to not have a sense of fear and anxiety and, and doubt. But how we ultimately respond through this can really be our testimony. Paul's situation, he finds himself in prison. He finds himself chained to a guard on a regular basis. And he's got two options. He's innocent. He could very easily turn around and say, this is unfair. This is unjust. What, what, I mean, God, what are you doing this to me? You know, I'm, I, I could be out planting churches. What do you got me stuck in a jail for? But he realized very early on that so long as he's in this prison situation, he will be chained to the personal bodyguard of the emperor. And not just one, but they would, be on, would have been on a rotation. Every few hours, they would have changed guards, and he would have a new guard every time. And so for Paul, he's got every few hours a new person to hear the gospel. A new person who's not just any old person, but a personal guard who is only one step removed from the king of the world. Caesar himself is only one step away from these guards to whom Paul can preach. Now, I can almost picture these poor guards. You know, I mean, they probably, After about a week of this, it would have been a case of you draw the short straw, you've got, to go, you've got to go guard the Christian. Because they would have just known what's coming. The minute you get in there, you're going to be hearing about this Jesus character. But even in that midst of that situation, Paul was still able to to see, to do something incredible through that. And so his response, his ability to see some good that could come out of this became his testimony. And so he can actually say that the whole palace guard has been able to hear the gospel as a result of this. Really quite remarkable. And then finally, verse 14 and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. See, Paul was one man, Paul was one preacher, and he was, he was obviously limited in his ability to preach. But what he noticed is that having been locked up and having been treated as poorly as he'd been treated, it actually encouraged other believers to step up and take on the mantle. Not just one but a multitude of other Christians seeing Paul's situation, realizing that, well, Paul can't do the work, somebody's going to have to do it. And so as a, res- as a result, Paul, the response was something even greater than what was Paul's own immediate crisis. And so I guess the challenge is this, how we do respond can be encouragement or it could be disencouragement to those around us. And I know this is a hard challenge. I know this is a maybe a difficult thing to hear, but I think it's particularly true for us as leaders. How we as leaders respond is going to be saying everything to those people that are watching us. And to those who are discipling other people, how we respond in the midst of this is going to encourage or discourage those people that we're leading, those people that we're discipling. And they're watching, they're watching how we respond. Now, it's not to deny the difficulty of it, but it's to recognize we have an opportunity here to lead through this situation. Paul had that opportunity to lead through that situation, and as a result, the gospel went even further. More people were able to step up and were encouraged to carry on the work that he, he was no longer able to do. And so I guess my point is fairly simple. How do we respond in this crisis? As Christians and certainly as Christian leaders, how do we respond in the midst of all of this? It's not, to, it's not to deny or dismiss the difficulty of what we're facing. And it's not to uh, deny that we have fear and we have doubt and we have uncertainty. But even in the midst of all of that, can we still seek out God? Do we still have the faith to declare, you know what, this is, I, I can't see the, where this is going. And I do have some fear, but I also have trust and reliance in my God. And then I just wonder if we just see at that point what God is able to do, even in the midst of this difficult time let me just pray father we find ourselves in this it's an unprecedented unheard of difficult time lord we don't know where this is going we don't know how this is going to turn out there's so much uncertainty and fear is a natural response anxiety and doubt and uncertainty they're all absolutely natural gut responses to this type of thing but god i pray that even in the midst of that by your spirit we might find a new sense of courage in you we might find a new sense of just faith in you and in who you are and what you can do because we know that you are the god of the universe we know that you are the god in control of all situations your word says that you can take you can do good things even through the most difficult situation and so we rely on you right now god and we just ask that as christians and as just testaments to you to who you are and to your kingdom God, I pray that through this dark time that we could be lights by our actions, by our responses, by our attitudes towards this and by the comfort that we can bring to others through this difficult time. That your glory and your your gospel and your kingdom would advance and shine light into this dark time, Lord. And so we thank you, we look to you, we praise you and we trust you in all of this. In your incredible name, amen.